Good morning. Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. And good morning to all of you all who are watching on the live stream. It's so nice to have you with us as well. Really, just looking into your faces, isn't it amazing just to be with other people? It's different and sometimes terrifying, but also amazing. We are a spirited and spiritual community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We're very glad to welcome all of y'all. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so in the spirit of that heritage, we greet one another on a Sunday morning by turning to one another and welcoming one another here. And if you are watching on the live stream and you have comments, please do greet one another in the comments. Please join me and say the words by which we light our chalice. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. Our call to worship today is by Robin Wall Kimmerer from Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Even a wounded world is feeding us. Even a wounded world holds us, giving us moments of wonder and joy. I choose joy over despair, not because I have my head in the sand, but because joy is what the earth gives me daily, and I must return the gift. This congregation wrote a mission statement for itself, and it it's used in order to guide our decisions as we shape the church into the future. We revisit it every seven years. So this is our new mission as of about maybe three years ago. Um, it's pretty much similar to the old mission, but we added beloved community to it. And we wrote it on our wall and we say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. And then we have a moment for beloved community after we say our mission. And today I am going to acknowledge that we have heard the phrase critical race theory quite a bit in the last few weeks um, on the news as people have used it as the new scare tactic for the right-wing folks. But I just want to tell you exactly what it is Um, Just in case you don't know, but you probably do already. Critical race theory began in the late 70s and early 80s, which means it's about a 40-year-old theory. And the core of the theory says that race is a social construct rather than a biological construct. It's a social construct, and it affects your life. Your race and your ethnicity affect your life quite a bit in this culture, not just because of individual people who are racist, but because built into the structure of the entire culture and its political policies and its laws is a racism that keeps 
the situation such that if you're a white person, uh, most and also a white man, usually, you end up at the top of the culture. You aren't guaranteed to end up at the top of the culture, but you have an easier game to play if you are a white man or a white woman, a little bit less. Black man, a little bit less. Black woman, a little bit less. You have a harder degree of difficulty in the game that you're playing because it's built into the policies. Now, the people who um, began this theory are legal scholars, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, and Richard Delgado, among others. This theory is taught in law schools, not elementary schools (laughs) at all. Law schools. So when people say they're going to ban critical race theory from our elementary schools, they're blah, blah, nonsense, blah, blah, shenanigans. (laughs) A good example of racism built into policies that keep white people up and black and brown people down is one called redlining, where in the 1930s, banks would get together and look at their town and draw a line around certain neighborhoods where the financial struggles were more dire. And they would say, we are not going to give mortgages to the people who live inside these lines. That's called redlining. And so inside those lines that the bank people drew, you only could rent because you couldn't get a mortgage. And that had a tremendous effect on the neighborhoods and the health of the neighborhoods around that town. Another example is the example of peonage, which I'm sure you remember exactly because I talked to you about it maybe a couple months ago, um, where where, um, slavery was abolished except in the case of criminals, and criminals could be used for basically slave labor. And so the um, pipeline into the prisons became robust and especially black men were shepherded into prisons so that they could then continue providing slave labor. Peonage, you can look it up. And that is our moment for beloved community. Good morning. Here and now, I am standing underneath a goat bridge that allows goats to go from this pen over here up and over my head to the goat pen on the other side. Isn't that wonderful? Here and Now by Julia Denos, illustrated by E.B. Goodale. Right here, right now, you are reading this book. The book is in your lap or in your hands or in someone else's. You are sitting or you are standing or you are wrapped up in a bed. Under your bum, under your feet is a seat, a floor or a cloud if you are on an airplane. And under all of those things is the earth, the grass and the dirt, the earthworms and the fossils, the rocks. And the earth is spinning in the middle of space. We don't know why, but it is. And you are too. Right here, right now, while you are reading this book, 
Many, many things are happening. Rain is forming in the belly of a cloud. An ant has finished its home on the other side of the planet. Somewhere, a telephone is ringing. An idea is blooming. Grass is pushing up through cement. A friend you haven't met yet is sitting down to dinner. There are animals, wild ones, and tame, living and breathing all around you. Muscles are growing, cities are growing, cuts and broken bones are sewing up and healing. Unseen work is being done. Right here, right now, you are becoming. Isn't it wonderful? Our meditation reading for today is These Roses by Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of our Unitarian forebears. These roses under my window make no reference to former roses or to better ones. They are for what they are. They exist with God today. There is no time to them. There is simply the rose. It is perfect in every moment of its existence. Before a leaf bud has burst, its whole life acts. In the full-blown flower, there is no more. In the leafless root, there is no less. Its nature is satisfied, and it satisfies nature in all moments alike. There is no time to it. But man postpones or remembers. He does not live in the present, but with reverted eye laments the past, or, heedless of the riches that surround him, stands on tiptoe to foresee the future. He cannot be happy and strong until he, too, lives with nature in the present above time. Now is the time in our worship when we join together in silence, where we meditate and pray, we speak to God as we understand God, or we listen to God, or we listen to our inner wisdom, or we just watch our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. Let us join together in what Emerson called the wise silence. As we remain in meditation, you are invited to begin lighting candles of joy or sorrow or hope or remembrance. May our meditations as we sit together be helpful and pleasing to our spirit of community and to our being. with the spirit of love and truth together. When I was in seminary, I was really occupied with the readings that we had to do, with the classes we had to go through, with the politics of the seminary and with the community that I was in. I lived there at seminary and so all the whole cloud of witnesses that was there with us, um, we interacted with each other quite intensely 
in seminary having theological discussions and gossip and chisme, you know, things that are fun to do together. Um, we didn't really, or I have to say about myself, I found myself feeling like I was living kind of skating over the surface of my life. Everything was going too fast. Everything was almost a blur. And so one spring I began to, uh, as a word person, I began to use words to just um, get a little traction in my life. And I would, I would be walking to class and I would say, this is the time of year when the daffodils are blossoming. And I see the daffodils, and they look sturdy and yellow. And this is spring. Or in another season, I would say, this is the season where the geese are migrating overhead, and the sky is full of the sound of honking geese. Um, that's what's happening now in the Northeast. The skies are noisy with the sounds of geese. And I felt like I got a little traction, like... I wasn't skating over the surface of my life anymore. And so I kept it up with just naming to myself what I was seeing and what I was hearing. And, um, and I never realized that what I was doing could be called mindfulness until during the hangout with the ministers that we have every Tuesday and Thursday at 11, one of you all shared a spiritual practice that you'd read about in a book uh, edited by Scott Alexander called Everyday Spiritual Practices. And this spiritual practice is called Creating Sacred Moments. And I'll talk to you more about it in a second, but I want to tell you the reason we're talking about this this morning is that we're toward the end of a series on the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. And the seventh element in the Eightfold Path is called Right Mindfulness. So how do you do mindfulness? And I'd been uh, a little bit put off by mindfulness for my whole life um, just because it sounded so hard. And people wanted you to sit for 20 minutes twice a day and just let your thoughts um, pass in front of your uh consciousness until there was a time when you achieved no thought. And mindfulness also was described as, you know, washing dishes or loading the dishwasher, like doing nothing else with your mind. Just, I'm right here. I'm loading the dishwasher. I, I'm just like, so when do you listen to your podcasts? I, I don't understand. But what she said was, um, there's, this, there's this practice that helps orient you in the present moment. And you need orienting in the present moment because, um, according to all spiritual teachers, human nature is to live in the past or live in the future. And we live in the past by thinking about things we've said or done or things that have been said to us or done to us. We think about choices that we made that we wish we'd made otherwise. Or we think about 
what our body used to be able to do and now can't do anymore. And we feel regretful or we feel angry or we feel grievy about these things. Or we think about changes to friendships and losses in our family. And really, it's like a quicksand sometimes when you start dwelling, dwelling in the, in the past. But it's so easy to do. Your brain just seems to want to do it. And if it's not dwelling in the past, it's worrying about the future. Like, I really hope this thing goes well, or I really hope I make good choices about this job or about raising my kids, or really hope that my kids turn out, or really hope that nothing bad happens, or really I'm scared about all the things that could happen to me and to my family and to my body. I'm worried about money, and I'm worried about um, health and... uh, worry that I might say something that will ruin a relationship. And um, you can get so occupied with that that you're not in the present moment, which is where all the spiritual teachers say you want to be. And um, so this essay that the church member pointed out is by a man named Edwin C. Lynn, and it's in this book called Everyday Spiritual Practices. And he talks about creating sacred moments, and he uses the mnemonic, mnemonic, it's a hard word to say, um, of alliteration. So he has six S's that he talks about. And the first one is he he says you orient yourself. He, He takes walks, and he wants to orient himself by sight first. And so you're in a moment in your life and you, you can create a sacred moment. Really, it sounds like anywhere just by saying, what am I seeing right now? Let me just notice what I'm seeing right now and not just in a flash, but let me give my brain time to process what I'm seeing right now. What does the light look like on the water of the lake? Or what does this what does the, the grass look like? What do these flowers look like? And one of you takes pictures of flowers. Several of you take pictures of flowers when you're on your walks. And that's another way to really see things. You, you make sure that you're really seeing what you're seeing in this sacred moment. And the second S he talks about is sky. You look up at the sky. So you you lift your eyes up, and is it the gorgeous, glorious blue that it is today? Or are there little white puffy clouds in there? Or is there a gray cloud cover up there? Are there birds flying up there? What does the sky look like? What does the sunset look like? What does the sunrise look like? Another of you tells about how her mom loves sunsets, and that's what she remember one of the ways she remembers her mom is at the sunset when it's a beautiful sunset she knows her mom would have loved that sunset looking at the sky and i remember reading that people who struggle with depression don't as often lift their eyes above eye level as people who don't struggle with depression i have no idea whether that's true or not i just read it and the people the psychologists who were saying those things, 
suggested that possibly lifting your eyes up might help you fight depression. I'm, again, no idea whether that's true or not. It's worth a try. Just to, to look up the way many people don't ever. The third one is stance. You feel yourself standing on the ground or you feel yourself sitting where you're sitting and you notice your connection with the earth. And we're sitting here in a building that has several layers in between us and the earth. But I think if you put your consciousness down through the layers, you can pretty much feel the earth. It's a pretty slender skin of layers that we have over the actual earth here. Um, And so you can feel, I hope, your connection with the earth here as you sit. Your stance is um, where you stop and sense your oneness with all the things and beings around you, too, because they share the earth. Those sheep over there, the goats in the in the goat park, the horses that you see, the trees, the rocks, all of the beings are connected with the earth, standing on the earth, living on the earth with us. And it's a chance to feel our connectedness, which is one of our holy feelings. Connectedness is one of the unofficial UU sacraments. Fourth is smell. You just smell what's what's around you. You can smell the lake or you can smell the sea. You can smell the food trucks, you can smell the sidewalk, you can smell the rain, you can smell leaves, flowers. Just when you're in a place, do you smell food being prepared? Do you smell your sweet old dog who's lovely but smelly? Do you, do you smell the smell of your house or are you so used to that that you don't smell it anymore? What are, what, how can you orient yourself around you by smells? And the fifth one is sense. So what are you sensing with your senses? So are you tasting something? Are you feeling the breeze on your face? Do you feel the sun on your shoulders? We were out there before the service started just feeling the sun and thinking how wonderful the sun felt, which is not something you often say in Texas. Usually you say, this sun is trying to kill me. But sometimes, come November, the sun feels really good on your shoulders and on your back. Where is the breeze hitting you? Where, where are you? How do you orient yourself? What are you feeling? What are you tasting? What's going on with you? What does your body feel like? Where does it hurt? And the last one is sound. You just listen. Is somebody talking to you? Do you hear the birds? Do you hear the hum of the appliances in your house? Do you hear your mixer kneading the bread dough? Do you, do you hear your, your kitty snoring? What are you hearing? These six S's are a way uh, to get traction in your life, to make room for the present moment. 
to arrest your thoughts for a moment as you worry about regrets in the past, as you worry about what's going to happen in the future, you orient in the present moment. And what's hoped by all the spiritual teachers is that if you make room like this, then you can get some clarity and feel like there's more space in your life so that you can figure out what you can do about the things you regret. Can you make amends in some way or do you just have to let it go as the person that you hurt dead already? Um, in that case, you can't really do anything. You just have to say a private little prayer to the universe that you're sorry about what you said or did and that somehow you can change in order not to do something like that again. So sometimes amends are possible and sometimes they're not. And sometimes you make an amend to somebody and they don't accept it, but you have to let it go anyway because you've done all you can do. And worries about the future, when you start to worry, you know, sometimes it feels like your wheels are spinning because you're so scared. Am I going to have enough money to last until as long as my body lasts? Am I, is my kid ever going to realize what life is all about? Um, is my partner ever going to stop drinking? Am I, am I going to have to choose, make a choice I don't want to make? And you get into a loop where you just lose contact with the ground and start spinning out. And this is a way that even psychologists recommend that you handle anxiety. What is something you're seeing? What is something you're tasting? What is something you're smelling? Where are your feet? Where are, is your seat? Where is your back? Where is your head? And just to become aware and make that space in your day, it's, it's a way to um, slow down that skatiness of life. That um, the Buddhist teachers call it, call your thoughts a jungle full of monkeys. And they say it's, it's like a jungle full of monkeys swinging from tree to tree. And then they go, no, it's like a jungle full of drunken monkeys swinging from tree to tree. Which you can imagine. So showing up for your life, paying attention to what's around you, present-mindedness. I'm so excited about learning about this spiritual practice of sacred moments because I always thought I was terrible at mindfulness, but it turns out I've been doing it all along. And I thought you had to sit tight for 20 minutes twice a day in order to do mindfulness, but you don't. You just have to orient yourself in space and time, which is... Um, more natural for some of us than others. Some people know where they are all the time. I don't understand that. They know if they pick up a sofa with somebody else, whether it's going to fit through that door or not. They know that. Again, don't understand that. How, how can you be so oriented in space and time that you would know something like that? How do you pack a car? My wife does this. How do you pack monitors and speakers and mic stands, and music stands, and three guitars, and drums, in a fiat. <laughs> it's a mystery to me. <laughs> Present-mindedness is easier for some people than other people, and everybody's got their own techniques for avoiding the present moment. 
The University of Massachusetts gives mindfulness training as part of its stress reduction program. And they say that in their literature that mindfulness practice can help you move toward greater balance, control, and participation in your life. They describe the opposite of mindfulness as a loss of awareness resulting in forgetfulness, separation from self, and a sense of living mechanically. Mindfulness teacher John Kabat-Zinn says this practice offers a way to navigate life's ups and downs, what Zorba, Greek, Zorba the Greek called the full catastrophe. Don't you love that? I want life, the full catastrophe, with grace, humor, and perhaps some understanding. So the Buddhist teachers always say, also, don't ever put anybody else's head on top of your own. So... You decide for yourself, is what they're saying. Just try it and see if orienting yourself in space and time this way with, with sound, with sight, with smell, with stance, with sense, and with the sky will help you slow everything down so that you can get clarity about what actually happened and what your story is about what happened what is actually happening to your body and your life today, not what might happen later. What are you doing? And who are you? Right now, that's the place we want to come to so that we can navigate the full catastrophe. So I wish you all luck and health with the full catastrophe, and I'm glad I get to experience it in this community with you all. Please join me and say the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Loosen, loosen, baby. You don't have to carry the weight of the world in your muscles and bones. Let go, let go, let go. Loosen, loosen, baby. You don't have to carry the weight of the world in your muscles and bones. Let go, let go, let go. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.